This episode of Troxel is supported by Avail. Content is more than Revit families. If it's digital, Avail can handle it. Learn more at getavail.com. Welcome to the Troxel Podcast. I'm Evan Troxel. This is the podcast where I have conversations with guests from the architectural community and beyond to talk about the co-evolution of architecture and technology. In this episode, I welcome Kyle Bernhardt. Kyle is the Chief Revenue Officer, aka CRO from now on, at TestFit. Kyle has spent his career exploring the intersection of technology and AEC. As the CRO of TestFit, he is currently focused on the intersection of automation and site feasibility scaling the test fit business, growing a team, and sharing his career experience with the rest of the team, and now us here at the Troxel Podcast. Prior to TestFit, Kyle worked in various roles in product management and business strategy at Autodesk, helping to connect BIM to the cloud, as well as design and make in the Autodesk construction cloud. In this episode, we discuss Kyle's career spanning from his education to Autodesk to TestFit, leadership, communication, Bridging between different groups within an organization, discussion about the unchangeable soul of an app, reducing friction in our processes, addressing unmet expectations, new chapters and new opportunities during one's career, and so much more. As with many of my guests, I can't help but think of how grateful I am that I get to experience the privilege of coming away smarter after talking with them, and I hope that translates to you as well. Kyle effortlessly shares and communicates his knowledge, and when combined with being openly willing to transfer it to all of us, something really cool happens. We all level up. As always, I hope you'll not only find value in this episode for yourself, but that you'll help add value to the profession by sharing it with your network. You can also really help me out by leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, which helps other people find it. So without further ado, I bring you my conversation with Kyle Bernhardt. Welcome. It's great to have you. Thanks for having me. So, Kyle, you have a, a long history on the tech side of the architectural industry. Something I just learned about you is that you've been with the Revit team previously, not anymore, but previously, since about two years after the acquisition. So you've been with Autodesk for a long time in your history of the architecty side of things. Maybe just let's give the audience uh and and myself included, since this is our I guess our first official meeting, uh, just uh, how how you've gotten to where you are now, and that would include I would assume a lot of really cool kind of stories throughout the uh, history of your career, uh, starting well. Let's just start maybe with the Autodesk stuff. Sure, absolutely, and, and you're right. I mean, it's I, I've been very fortunate to have stayed on the bull despite its efforts to throw me off, um, to, to have some really wonderful professional experiences in the technology space. And, you know, I think the origin story for me is, believe it or not, I was employed as a mechanical engineer, which is my original um, education. I was employed as a mechanical engineer, 
and I'd just gotten a job as an intern in lower Manhattan. And the company principal had just bought what at that point was called Autodesk Building Systems. And he had hired me, unbeknownst to me, to figure it out and teach the rest of the company. And I was in college at that point. And I remember thinking like, wow, this is so cool. Like, I feel so powerful learning these applications. And, you know, I really like this technology side. And that really started the journey for me that eventually brought me into the, you know, the, uh, the mothership that is Autodesk and the AEC industry segment. And I actually started there at, as a support technician. So I was on the other end of inbound support cases for the MEP products at Autodesk. And so, you know, you, you get bounced around via resellers trying to solve it. And eventually they go back to the mothership. And that was me on the other end of that. Um, and that was really an, ex- an awesome experience because you get to appreciate, you know, what are some of the challenges that customers are trying to, to solve with your technology and, and ultimately what's needed. And as part of that experience, which was really cool, you know, I got to sit in this um, really cool meeting that was called BugCom and it was the Bug Committee. And it was once a week and it was me representing the customer and the product manager representing kind of decision-making and the development manager representing the engineer's team to ability to execute. And we'd go down the list of all the new bugs from the last week and, and we decide whether or not we're going to fix that bug or defer it. And, you know, I was representing the customer side. And I remember seeing the product manager who was a uh, awesome lady, uh, uh, Laura Agla, who uh, last I knew was in uh, Siemens, but she was running product management. And I was like, what's this job? You got to be the decider. And I thought it was the coolest thing ever to be able to be helping to decide what was next and whether you'd just fix something or not. And, and that was a product manager job. And so I, I, there was an opportunity for Revit Systems that was still an alpha at that stage. So uh, the sequencing of adding additional disciplines to Revit started with architecture, and that was what was there at the moment of acquisition. Structure came on second, and then after that came the systems. And so that was an alpha, and that was kind of the new futuristic thing. And I just kind of threw my hat in the ring to be product manager, and I, I got that opportunity. And, and that was pretty crazy risk for Autodesk to take. You know, I was a 24-year-old product manager who thought he knew everything, but really knew hardly anything. And that really started the journey for me in the Revit team that I was part of for the following 12 years. And I, I can keep walking you through there, but I want to give you space to ask some questions here, Evan, as we go through this journey. Yeah, I think one of the things that I want to know is it seems to me like you have been in the position of being the bridge between two different things. So just in that short story, you experienced this getting hired as an intern to kind of bridge the gap between the ability to learn and then teach, which I think is kind of crazy, but, but also this is, we, we see this behavior all the time in the architectural profession, bring in the fresh blood to come teach us olds how to do something. Um, new, new technology wise. So that, that's kind of an interesting position to be in as an intern, right. To teach everybody, like to, to create value in a company from such a entry position and then to do it again at Autodesk, right. So being the one who bridges between customers and the engine, the, the dev team, right. To say, look at, this is their experience. And these are the things that are not working for them. And, and then, then kind of 
negotiating the the terms of fixing the software, kind of telling the story of of you know s- s- one group to another group and being that bridge. Did how did you take to that? How did you? It sounds like you're kind of still on that journey today, even at, at TestFit, right? So um, bridging the gap between the, the tech team and sales. And so I'm just wondering if you've always seen that in yourself as something that you're one of your core competencies, or if that's just something that has just kind of happened to you because you were in the right place at the right time. Well, it's a great question, Evan. And I, you know, I think with a lot of things in life, it's the answer is always kind of a mixture of, of those two things that you just articulated there. Um, you know, for me, I've always been an individual who could, uh, synthesize complex systems and communicate the way they operate in a way that's a little bit more approachable than perhaps the, the the teams that built those systems kind of architected them. And that's always been a skill set I had. And I think that was definitely a valuable piece that I, you know, you think you're kind of born with. Although, you know, I, I'd argue um, playing some really complex video games in my youth probably helped as well. Um, a lot of city builders and that sort of fun stuff. But that was definitely there. But, you know, I've always been fascinated with like the idea of like the polyglot, that individual who can speak many different languages. And, and certainly as I've had, you know, different opportunities in my professional career that have taken me into different responsibilities, you kind of appreciate that in the professional sphere, you can be a polyglot while still speaking the same language because you've got to be able to effectively adapt the way in which you're communicating to your audience and, and, and not only speak things in terms of the way they understand current issues, but also being able to appreciate what their motivations are and what are the things that are going to influence them. Because in many ways, as I moved into the product management sphere, which, you know, to me, I I still consider one of the coolest jobs in the world is to be a a software team product manager. You know, the demands on that job are so tremendous because you're, you're kind of being required to be that polyglot of the technology sphere. Because the way in which you need to articulate and motivate teams Uh, at an engineering level is very, very different than the way in which you approach a conversation with a customer, which is very, very different than the way in which you approach a conversation with your executive stakeholders, um, which, you know, is kind of the trifecta in my experience. And so, yeah, I mean, you kind of end up as that sort of interpreter, if you will, and you're constantly synthesizing and at the same time, you know, deciding which things you want to bring forth because you know the things that matter to your executive stakeholders are not the things that you bring forth when you're talking with the engineering staff, which aren't the things when you're interfacing with your user experience teams, which aren't the things if you're interfacing with customers in a research session. So it's a very multimodal um, demand, and 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 those experiences that I've had throughout the, the you know last twenty years of my career have really helped me to be able to to do the things I'm doing today at TestFit. I I feel like you're a kindred spirit to to my position as well. I mean, it's it's been a similar story for me through the the teaching in the university and kind of delivering content from experts and resources and things like that to students, uh, mostly teaching software, you know, which was me learning it first and then teaching it then to them and kind of translating all of my experience doing 
my own kind of investigation and learning into something that was more understandable for someone who was seeing it for the very first time with very limited exposure to other tools that kind of maybe had similar foundational concepts or things, you know, they just didn't have that foundation. So that, that was kind of where I cut my teeth doing that. And then going into, te- you know, selling courses or doing podcasts I mean, is very much synthesizing for a- another person oftentimes breaking down what was said or, or digging a little deeper to get a better understanding. And then I think you, you kind of encapsulated it perfectly with, you know, what it's like to work in digital practice in a firm. I mean, you're, you're talking about it from a product standpoint with customers and executives and dev team and things like that. And, and I experienced that from users and it and the leadership and, even the client side, right? So there, those are very different languages, what a client needs to hear about an architectural project versus what a technology team needs to implement a parametric script on the way in uh, to, to make it look like we need it to look, to a visualization team who speaks a different vocabulary when it comes to creating imagery, to an executive team when you are trying to procure tools, right? These are all very different conversations to navigate, different vocabularies to navigate. And I do feel like it's one of the signs of an effective leader. And I'm definitely not trying to kind of pat myself on the back there, but it is something that is a requirement if you want to lead people is you have to kind of get to, this sounds weird, but get to their level, you know, get to their baseline quickly. Um, so that you can establish trust, build a relationship, and that and and actually truly rely on a common understanding between you and them, and then be able to do that on all these different levels. Oh, oh, absolutely! And it, you know, my God, do I have professional scars and you know bruises from from my past as I've I, you know I've stepped through those very you know individual realities as as you kind of become aware that you know, the, the, the idea itself is not the destination. You know, I think it's so easy to become infatuated with the problem space and, and just inhabit the question of what's the right answer that you can lose track of. Okay. If you got the right answer, congratulations, let me give you a pat on the back and an eighth place medal. But the finish line is actually getting teams to go to that destination. And that starts to become a, a, a people problem and a, pot, a process problem. And, you know, at least for me, I, I probably spent way too many years of my 20s to, to be proud of pursuing just the idea. And I can remember plenty of instances where I ran flat into the brick wall of reality of, of that human and process side. I mean, gosh, I remember, you know, I was product manager for Revit Systems and, you know, we'd gotten out of beta and, you know, there's I had this beautiful uh, MRD, the market requirements document, and it was the annual, you know, document I was supposed to deliver as a product manager that represented all that the market needed. And it's, you know, kind of the place where you invest your hopes and dreams of what's next, and you're doing your best to co- convert uh, the needs that you've heard from customers into functional requirements, like you know, the system shall support the nesting of systems in HVAC. Uh, so that you could get like, you know, a chiller system connected to your VAB boxes, to your diffusers, you know, all that stuff. And I ran into a brick wall that that was the year our corporate leadership had decided to go implement the ribbon. 
and you know it was the 2020 2010 release of Revit and you know others can can judge whether we got it right and you know I think there was some meaningful improvements we made in the second iteration that, that probably got that UI better but in that example I was all about the idea of my space and I, you know I'll never forget I went to this meeting where it was basically you know communicated that hey you know we're doing this thing that was internally called Air Max AutoCAD Inventor Revit uh, 3D Studio Max, those were the hero apps. We called this internal project Air Max. And that, you know, corporate-wide, we were bought in that we needed to get some consistency across apps. And I was all kinds of mad and I threw a tantrum. And like, you know, the decision was already made. <laughs> and I didn't realize that the decision was already made and that I had already lost and none of my hopes well, and dreams were it. happening. And, <laughs> you know, that was a very seminal moment for me to appreciate that you know, to go be successful in these companies and, and, and really in business in general is not all just about having the right ideas. I mean, because to this day, I'll die on the hill that I had the right ideas in that 80 page document. But at the end of the day, that didn't matter. What mattered was discussions and decisions and strategic calculus that had, you know, very little to do with nesting systems and MEP and much more to do about, you know, a big company like Autodesk wanting to have some more continuity with technology and user experience across their hero apps, which, you know, now 20 years later in my technology experience, I kind of get. Um, but at the time, oh boy, you know, I, I dug myself a bit of a professional hole that day. So you you just mentioned that that you, I forget the exact words you use, but kind of an epiphany at that point. And I'm wondering, is that something that you've you've taken and built upon now where this idea of too long didn't read the 80 page document um these bigger things are at play that not as many people necessarily recognize or are all on board with but the the product needs to go this direction fundamentally i mean is that something now that that you learned that lesson and you brought it forth or is that was that a longer term lesson to learn throughout the, the, your your term at autodesk it's a great question. Well, I mean, it's it's tough for me to tell you whether the evolution of the way in which I have and, and the peers around me chose to communicate direction is because of us all collectively learning that lesson or the fact that in literally the same time frame, um, social media feeds were knocking down everyone's collective attention span, which I, at least I firmly believe is a major factor in the world we live in today. But certainly, you know, the thing I, I have learned and I've always carried forward is like, you know, there's these different abstraction layers of the idea. And it's probably a good idea to go inhabit the high altitude first and just go live there and sell the idea at that level before you go write the 80 page document with all your hopes and dreams baked into them. Because if you can't sell the idea at the high altitude it's pretty unlikely that you're going to go get the bandwidth to execute it at the low altitude, which at least in, in, in the Autodesk world of, of you know, 13,000 employees and you know, all sorts of wonderfully capable people spread across hundreds of you know, well-intentioned alpha executives, you know, the name of the game is not to, to have the right ideas at the low altitude. It's to be able to go navigate the high altitude to get the the coalition put together to actually go solve the big problems. That's actually the hard part. Coming up with a solution is not. And, and if you look at the, the walls of, of uh, you know, the, 
the, the feeds of LinkedIn and Twitter and the forums and everybody kind of lamenting certain things, it's easy to just, you know, think about just what needs to be done at a solution level. And my God, if it were that easy, that would be awesome. Um, but it certainly hasn't been in my my professional experience. Well, something that I've really noticed, I guess more from Autodesk than maybe anybody else, is that sentiment. You just kind of nailed it right there, is that, man, because this it's a real problem, right? Which is there are there are bugs, there are challenges that people deal with every day. And I guess this is where the the letters, the open letters to Autodesk are really stemming out of, which is like, man, this stuff just doesn't work. And and instead, these lofty ideas are coming out year after year, or maybe every two years, we're going to go in this direction, we're going to go in this direction, we're going to go in this direction. And we just saw it again at Autodesk University with uh, Forma, right? And the idea of what's next is really driving things. And everyone's like, but what we use right now is broken. And you're basically saying that it's never going to get better because we're going to do this other big thing. And so there is still a, a, a large disconnect between those kind of lofty abstraction layers that you're talking about and the day-to-day work of the people who pay for the software. Oh my God. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, I, I, so I will never forget seeing the email from our PR team about the first open letter. I remember exactly where I was sitting. It was like 1130 in the morning. And I knew immediately that the next, I wasn't sure how long at the time, but my my professional future was about you know had just changed because i i was the director of strategy for the building design segment at that point working in our industry strategy team i was out of product management at that point but you know part of my job was helping to steer the investment direction and you know i remember seeing that and i was like okay you know this is going to be all hands on deck and i was part of the team that engaged with a lot of the folks behind that letter and you know uh, certainly managing the demands of what's next and the kind of intellectual stimulation that comes from trying to chart that path versus the, you know, at at times more pragmatic needs of like, hey, writing a a, a formula in the family editor of Revit for a property is not as good as AutoCAD architecture was in 20. 2002, which is actually a true statement, like fixing that problem is a different, you know, it's a very different challenge. And it's not the same sort of intellectual demand as, you know, how do we architect this unified next generation platform? And and, and certainly, you know, I, I'm probably too close to the machine to, to kind of, you know, pass judgment on, on how effectively that's been done um, on the Autodesk side, but that's certainly a balancing act. And, and I think you're absolutely spot on that there are extremely valid critiques about the decision-making that has been made uh, for a platform like Revit, you know, trying to find that right balance. Having worked on that team and, and knowing all, you know, pretty much all the key people that have made all the key decisions over the last 15 years, many of whom, you know, I got to see at AU, you know, earlier this year and and, and shook their hands and had a great conversation because we worked together for years, you know, those are all very well-intentioned individuals trying to do what 
they perceive as best for the environment they're operating inside of. Now, there's always room for critiquing, but you know, the thing to I think we all have to appreciate is like there's not a lot of like, you know, it's easy to just not understand what led to a decision and presume incompetence. I feel like there's a lot of that in the world that we live in these days. And certainly, you know, I think the reality is much more, probably more of the peanut butter being a bit too thick or been too thin, sorry, in, in pursuit of trying to do a lot of things. But, you know, at the end of the day, you know, Autodesk is better positioned than any other company in the market in terms of all the pieces and the, and the people and the money and the, and the wherewithal to go try to build that big unified forma. And, and obviously, you know, I wish them well in, in, in that pursuit as somebody who was there for a while, you know, but th- that's that balancing act, like you mentioned, Evan, is, is, is really trying to, you know, meet people where they're at, while at the same time reflecting on certain realities of technology, which is, you know, if I'll opine for a second, then you can, you can go with your next question. You know, I think one of the things that I came to appreciate in the software space, because, you know, this has been my whole career, you know, I'm more of a software guy than I'm going to be a mechanical engineer. You know, that was a very small, you know, part of my own professional career is that like a piece of software develops a soul within the first, you know, I don't know, two to three years of its life. And you really can't change the soul of an application once that soul is created. You can put a different UI on it. You can, you know, re-platform it. But at the end of the day, the soul of that application is born of the product market fit that that team was pursuing in the very earlier stages. And, and very often the process of, you know, changing out the soul runs up against things like technical debt, things like architectural debt, user experience debt, just general existing behavior that you really can't change the soul. And, you know, I think a lot of ways that's been what's been playing out, uh, at least in the Revit space, is just that there's this expectation because the, the pitch around BIM, you know, pointed towards a soul of the technology that didn't align with the soul that was Revit. Revit was great. I'll die on that hill that it's great. But there were expectations of what Revit would somehow magically become that weren't the soul of the product. And so there was kind of misaligned expectations from the promise of BIM, which of course I'm still bought into. And I'll never forget the first time I had the opportunity with a guy like Phil Bernstein to talk about what BIM could be, you know, in the early stages of my career. But it's that kind of disconnect of expectations and the reality that, you know, technology is not this perfectly malleable thing. You know, software gets hard very quickly. And, and it's difficult for people who've been outside the walls of, you know, real technology teams to appreciate how hard these things can be, especially in a world in which all the keys to make these things happen are strewn across seven organizations with a couple hundred executives with fancy titles and good paychecks that need to be convinced to, to move in that direction. Yeah. <laughs> and, and then to throw in, you know, going after different markets and shareholder and, you know, trying to keep, keep the share price going up. And those are better driven by new features than fixing bugs. Right. So there's, there's definitely a lot tugging at this problem from all different angles. And this is something that it's a theme in a lot of podcasts and presentations that I do that, that, you know, on I say there's, there's two things that architects hate and you could probably 
you know, swap that word out for whatever group you want, but it's the way things are and change. Right. And so it's like everybody's fighting for, because of the way things are, they, they don't like it. They don't like the bugs. They don't like the dysfunction. They don't. And that, that is on so many levels, not just the tools, right? It is, it is their own team dynamics. It is their own organization, et cetera. But they, they also hate change, right? Because they're, they're in on one, one side of their, their mouth, they're saying, you know, show us the future. And on the other side, they're saying, We're, we don't want to adopt it. Right. And so, we we kind of are find ourselves in the middle of those two things all the time and what's interesting is is architects i feel like for the most part have looked to these technology companies to invent their future for them what are the new ways that we are going to work and they're not taking responsibility for that they i'm i'm one of them right like this is us and this is one of those things that is kind of mind-blowing to me, which is we rely so heavily on these technology companies, and we're never happy with what they say. We're never happy with what they do or they don't do, right? And so it is is kind of odd to me that we are so dependent on and yet loathe the same entities for all of the reasons. You know, it, it's... It is kind of crazy. And, you know, one of the, a quote that I was thinking of when you were, were speaking was something that Buckminster Fuller said, is you never change things by fighting the existing reality. To change something, build a new model that makes the existing model obsolete. I mean, to your point of you can't change the soul of something, like there should be expiration dates and expectations around that in software because these things cannot last forever. New ideas, new paradigms come along and and you can't just update the existing thing to the new thing, right? To the new way of working, to the new bells and whistles or the requirements of from any different direction you could name. And and you kind of do have to replace it. And I and so these companies who are the chosen ones to lead the future of our profession by default, because that's what people are they're voting with their dollars, right? Of who's gonna be the ones who are gonna lead us to the next thing have to do it all and we're not happy if they don't do it all and i think that's that's really tough place for any company to be in but um it is it is you know we definitely see the kind of armchair quarterbacking and critiquing of these companies and how they're doing it wrong from every different angle on the on the design professional side Um, and at the same time we're not taking any responsibility to to do it for ourselves Oh boy. Yeah. I, I couldn't agree more with you. I, I think really well put, you know, I, I've, I've spent a lot of time, I mean, on the receiving end of this, you know, in my career and, and, and try to be kind of honest with myself about to what extent is, you know, is it the, the fault of, of myself and my decision-making or the teams that I work with or the industry at whole? I mean, it certainly, you know, as a generalization, like it's a lot, it's easy to blame others and not yourself. Um, you know, it's a generalization. I think there's plenty of that going on in the world right now without necessarily the introspection about where you fit into that piece. But, you know, I think my biggest observation in this topic, especially, is the one of technology and, and the expectations around, you know, BIM and what the future of AEC technology could be is that, you know, I think it's an artifact of what we've seen play out in other spaces of technology that has caused a lot of the issues and friction and and unmet expectations. And what I mean by that is like, we've all seen in the last, you know, 13, 14 years since the introduction of smartphones, this absolute revolution of the way in which technology serves us as humans, individual people. 
And, and, and we've seen that happen. And we've kind of extrapolated from that change an expectation of the same sort of revolution in other parts of the technology space. But I think what a lot of people miss in that reality is, is the topic of agency. You know, you as an individual have 100% agency to decide to buy a smartphone and, and decide which one to buy and pick out services. And like, you don't have to go convince somebody about all of those changes. And I think people forget that the realities of delivering buildings that don't fall down and, you know, delivered by companies that make money, that make sure people can make their mortgage payments and, and make sure that there's insurance bonding in case things go sideways and it doesn't kill the company. And in terms of overall professional licensure reliability, like there are so many more factors at the enterprise business to business level of delivering a building that those things are so powerful. And we just distill that, oh, well, if only the technology existed to make these things work better, then the whole market will shift because that's what I've seen play out in the consumer side. But people miss that reality that like, there isn't the agency for like one person to snap their fingers and like, oh, well, this is a better way to go. Like there's a lot of entrenched reasons why things are the way they are. And then those things have nothing to do with technology. I mean, my favorite example is like, you can't tell me that a hard bid delivery model is incentivized for the fastest, um, most collaborative way to deliver the best product. Cause you know, I'll die on that <laughs> hill that it's not, um, but it's perceived as the cheapest option. And that doesn't have one bit to do with the technology stack those teams picked. But if you think about the ability of those teams to actually use and leverage technology in the most meaningful way to accomplish the best outcomes, you can't tell me that that's the best contractual structure to make that collaborative environment happen. But, you know, people aren't complaining and writing open letters to the AIA about their contract documents and their dismay for, you know, whether those have moved forward, but they certainly are writing them to Autodesk and saying that, you know, you didn't do enough multi-threading. And that's the reason why, you know, I, we haven't moved the industry forward. I just, I think it's misplaced fault. And it's a bit of a, of a reductionist view around kind of why things are the way they are. Well, you're totally, you're totally right. It's so much easier to blame somebody else for your own problems, right? I see it with my teenager, but, but to, to your point in our profession of architecture and just call it AEC, it's so easy, right? And, and you're, what could go wrong, right? I'm competing, especially in public work, which is where I cut my teeth in. It's like, we are competing with other firms to be the lowest cost, basically, to do the project in the shortest amount of time to then receive the lowest bidder on the project that could possibly do it in the fastest amount of time. What could go wrong? Like, how how could we think that that's not going to be the absolute best solution for this client. And that is the environment that that we happily play along with. If we weren't happy about it, we wouldn't do it. We would do something else. Now, that's tongue in cheek, right? Like we're not happy about that delivery model, but at the same time, like yeah, we're not writing letters to the AIA or coming together as a profession at large to say this is never going to happen like this again because it sucks for everyone. No, we continue to play along. And so when it comes to tech, I mean, your, your analogy is fantastic. Yeah, absolutely. And I would just go one step bigger than that, because ultimately, I don't think architects themselves have the agency to do some of those shifts either. I mean, it's, it comes down to, you know, it, it's almost like the owner has to decide that, that, hey, I, wanted to, I want this asset delivered to me in a different way. 
But the challenge is, is like that owner isn't some monolithic thing. It's it's dramatically different between the public sector and the private sector. It it, it differs from you know different regions. It's it's just so ridiculously complex that you know it's easy to say, oh gosh, it's the technology company's fault. You know, if only it were easier to make a formula and the family editor better, then we would have solved this. And it's just, you know, I, I still think there should be a better formula editor for the record. You know, go look at ADT. It's, it's actually really good. Uh, or now AutoCAD architecture. But, um, you know, at the end of the day, you know, that's that's a thing. You know, it's got to be the construction companies that decide and, you know, all those things. And, and, and that's been, you know, for me, trying to unlock that change has been a defining part of in the last 10 years for me professionally is trying to think about where you have that leverage. And that's part of what brought me to TestFit, which we, we certainly can talk through. But you got any other Autodesk stuff, we can certainly, you know, chat through that. Let's take a quick break to share more about our sponsors. My friends, I've got a new chapter in the Avail story to tell you about, and that is the newly released version of Avail Desktop 4.3. The people behind Avail continually strive to make things easier for you. Easier to find the information you're looking for, easier to get it into your preferred application, and easier to store it in your preferred cloud storage locations. Let's face it, I think we can all agree that easier is better. But they didn't stop there. They also care about what your experience is like. So, as always, they've kept their focus on visuals with an eye toward design and ease of use. You're probably dying to hear the details of what's new. Well, who am I to get in the way? So let's get right to it. Avail Desktop 4.3 will now feel like your own custom app thanks to key cards. Key cards are data-driven and create zippy new visual ways of organizing your existing content. Think of them like pivot tables for your content. Join the Avail Desktop 4.3 party in BYOS or bring your own storage. Now you can store and deliver your content using Autodesk's BIM 360, Microsoft's OneDrive, Microsoft SharePoint, Google Drive, Dropbox, Ignite, and others. Avail's new dynamic paths feature also solves the problem of accessing content using desktop connectors like Autodesk Desktop Connector. Try it today. Either bug your admin to update your installation for all the new goodies, or if you aren't currently using Avail, go to getavail.com today to learn more. That's getavail.com. And now let's get back to our conversation. No, I think this is a perfect segue. Uh, you know, one thing that I think, you know, kind of getting back to that Buckminster Fuller quote and, and building a new model that makes the existing model obsolete, there, there is one thing to have the product that makes the existing methodology or product obsolete. But there's another really important factor here, which is behavioral change or the ability to explore or discover something new. And, and to your point about agency in a firm, I remember having conversations with, with Clifton, CEO of TestFit, you know, years ago, AU in Vegas. And, you know, he was pounding the pavement, getting out there and just talking to people. And, you know, I definitely felt his pain when he, and I think other startups in similar space don't have too much of a different story, which is like, we thought architects were going to be our audience and guess what? They weren't. Why? Because of those things that I just said, right? Like the lack of agency of a particular person who knows with their, in their bones that this is a better way to do things 
but they can't get the ear of leadership. They can't get anyone to purchase or even subscribe to a license. They can't get them to install it on their machine. They can't use it on every single project for every single decision. And all of these factors are working against us in this industry because of the way that we've set up the way we do things. And there are people who really care and they're out there building these new tools and they're trying to just get their foot in the door in this industry that hates the way things are and they hate to change. And, and basically the door is being slammed back in their face. And so they're forced to go somewhere else to another adjacent industry who is more open to, and these are generalizations, but but that's where these startups are finding their footings is in adjacent industries. And to get to a tipping point where maybe someday the architects will jump on board because they actually see the opportunity that they should have seen, you know, months or years ago. Um, but again, like in, in loose generalizations, this is kind of the behavior that we see that goes along with this the difference between innovation and adoption right like that gap is always getting bigger and bigger and bigger because we're so slow to adopt new innovation that is happening by our own people our own tribe but we're just un- unwilling or unable to to get on board with those things yeah, well you're right and you know it's funny i i spent uh i had a very formative experience i'm just going to go back to my, my my revit experience for a second there i mean I, i'll never ever forget the experience of being the product manager for revit systems and interfacing with all of these consulting engineer firms that were getting revit systems kind of just pushed down their throat they were kicking and screaming because they, rightfully so this product was pretty raw and and they were being forced by their architects who saw it doing the job they needed for architecture and just kind of extrapolated from there that it's going to do it for systems. And, you know, I got just my butt handed to me in these conversations because they were not happy. And I remember being, you know, I was so bought into the vision of every, you know, how great it was. And I just couldn't understand why and why they want it, why they want it. But at the end of the day, like these were principals managing firms that were profitable. They had jobs going on that were profitable, like their business wasn't broken as far as they could see. And in in, in many ways, if you kind of distribute the responsibility and risk is is flatly and thinly across all these different companies that make up these projects to deliver, everybody's individual space like isn't on fire, but collectively the whole industry kind of is and everyone can see it. But there's no one person that's like, oh, my God, I have to stop. And so, you know, that's always been my observation is it's less about, you know, oh, everyone's a stick in the mud than it is like, you know, I'm a logical person looking at what's going on and like my house isn't on fire right now. And, and as a result, I'm not doing it. Um, but certainly to connect to your, your comment around, you know, where folks in architecture may be jumping to other opportunities or maybe even into the software space. You know, to me, I, I kind of frame that more so about, you know, there is moments when humanity figures out that technology can do a job for them that it hasn't been doing before. And, and those moments happen and you can, you know, write books about it and people have PhDs on these different things. But, you know, anytime you figure that out and you identify and prove that there's a new job for technology is one of those kind of moments when you can write a new chapter. And with that new chapter comes opportunity 
and, and, and just these, you know, really, really interesting, engaging challenges. And in many ways, I feel like that is the, the chapter that's being written right now is a shifting of the job of what technology does. And when you do that, you're, you're much, much less beholden to these logical and we, we, we put them on main stages and talk about how the productivity curve hasn't moved with the rest of the stuff. But ultimately, at its you know, ground level is a bunch of well-intentioned and you know, competent people making logical decisions. You know, those, those entrenched issues don't exist when you're coming up with a new job for technology to do. And in many ways, you know, that was the thing that, you know, as I, as I got to know Clifton and, and what was going on at the test fit business was the thing that kind of, you know, led me to decide, Hey, after 16 years of working at this great company and all these wonderful people I know, and, you know, all the comfort that comes with that relationship capital of 16 years, you know, let's go make the single biggest, you know, professional risk you've done in your life. And it was really all about the fact that TestFit was creating that new job for technology in a way that historically hadn't been done. Uh, and they did it via an interaction paradigm that meshed humans and automation in a way that I could really believe in and, and I thought was going to really be the future. And, and, and that's the thing that gets everybody excited. And I, I have not seen how you could do the equivalent of that kind of new job in the space of architecture, at least I haven't seen a lot of innovation there. You know, I, I had the opportunity and one of my primary jobs in my final four years at Autodesk was I, I was the strategy briefing guy. And so we get these customers coming in and we wanted to talk to them about what we were doing um, at Autodesk for our future vision. And, and we wanted to hear from them about what their company strategy was for innovation. And, you know, I did hundreds of these and it was great. It's some of my favorite experiences. You get to work with the smartest companies on earth and hear their technology leadership. And everybody was talking about how there's all these big service opportunities, but I didn't see a single company that really had actually proven it and done it. And, and in many ways, I feel like that is the challenge with the architecture practice in general is I've seen all this desire to, you know, reinvent themselves, but like, I haven't seen one be like, I'm willing to get on board for the construction intent of this building, not just design intent. Like I never seen one want to do that, you know, and willing to deal with taking on the insurance bonding to do that and all those other things. Like it's been like, I want to stay in my lane of responsibility and risk, but I want to somehow reinvent myself inside those constraints. And I guess the, the lesson I've learned in the technology space that you could apply to the broader industry is like, it just doesn't work that way. Like you got to take a risk and decide to take on a new job that is substantively different and more expansive or more lucrative than what you've done before. Because if not, like the antibodies in the market that keep things the way they are, like they're going to get you you're not going to win that Thunderdome battle. Like you're going to lose. So tell us what it was like for you to make that decision to leave uh, the, the thing that you had been doing for so long and kind of take this chance on uh, the new kid on the block kind of a situation. Well, Jesus, was it scary? Let me just start with that. I mean, God, um, you know, getting to the point where I concluded that that was the most, you know, the most, uh, uh, interesting and, and right decision for me was, was a long path. But I guess, you know, it, it, it started with the reality that like, I remember telling myself as like a 28 year old that like, I should, I should get into startup someday. Yeah, it'd be great. 
you know, and then like 40 came calling for me a couple years ago and I was like, oh God, okay. Um, so I'm about to turn 40 and I'm at Autodesk and it's great. I've got this awesome job and, you know, the team that I got to work with was fantastic. And, you know, I had all this relationship capital, but ultimately, you know, it's still, uh, you know, you, you, you just inherently with a company of 13,000, you're going to have all the great choices and responsibility spread across a few hundred great executives that are all generally speaking good folks and i like working with them and you know the, the the allure of the startup is to take those decisions and thicken the peanut butter across a much much smaller subset and with that becomes risk but also agency to go get stuff done and and, and so i kind of like okay i should maybe start thinking about that or else you know i could have this outcome which to be clear, is the ultimate first world problem of like, oh, I've had a successful career at Autodesk, you know, which is a great company to work for. So it's not like it's a bad outcome. But, you know, identifying that, you know, there's this company, TestFit, which, you know, consequentially, I became aware of, actually, I was part of the deal team that eventually acquired Spacemaker. So back in the day, and that was actually how I got to know Clifton. You know, it was part of my job to maintain eyeballs on what was going on at TestFits and a number of the other companies that were on our deal board that, you know, eventually led to Spacemaker as an acquisition was to, to stay in touch there. And, you know, the thing that, you know, really helped sell me on um, what TestFit was doing and why TestFit might be the destination was, was a couple of things. You know, one, it was... Um, from a from a product perspective, I already alluded to, you know, I just think, you know, we at TestFit have nailed the human machine interface, that real time solve where you as a human has control over all of the choices that the AI is ultimately making, but you're getting an end result in real time. So like, it's not like it's this big black box that shot out 10 choices that you have to pick from. It's like you're working in unison. And I believed in that. Um, but there was also this appreciation that ultimately the delivery of buildings is a business first and an art second. And I, and I know that may not land very well with some of your architecture listeners, but I believe it to be the just reality. We can argue against that rain falling on us, but it's still falling. And and, and test fit with the way. I'll which, just double down on that, Kyle. Please. I, I just want to double down on that for a minute. It's like if you you can't be an artist if you don't have a, a, the means to do so right so the idea and this is something that that is not doesn't have enough prevalence in education for architecture for sure but it's like business first then art like that to me is the order that they kind of have to come in and you're right maybe it won't land well with everybody but you can't kind of have one without the other and I, I we are trained to suffer for our art and so the businesses also suffer right and there's a lot going on there but i just wanted to kind of reinforce what you were saying oh yeah i agree i totally agree and 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 and, and you know it's that was the thing is i looked at this company test fit that's like you know, and if you meet Clifton, and I know you've had him, he's great podcast. If you're listening to this episode and you haven't heard Clifton's, go back and listen to him because he's awesome. But you know, here's a here's a product that like actually has the guts to put a price on something. You know, I, I, I've sat in so many fantastic architectural discussions about what technology needs, and like, I never heard an impassioned plea from an architect that was like, "Gosh darn it, put a price tag on this." You know, I, I heard, oh, God, I need a lofted spline curve and I want to do all sorts of, you know, super complex geom geom geometric modeling capabilities. But no one was like, 
help me understand if I'm 30 million over budget, you know, right in real time, you know, and here was an app that, that, that had the point of view that like, yeah, this is volume buildings. You need to know the cost. And it ultimately, in order to raise the money to pay the fees to fund the architecture firm, you needed to make sure that that was going to be a good investment. And we may lament that that is the way the machine produces multifamily in the world, but that's the machine that produces multifamily. And so the fact that TestFit as a company seemed in a posture to try and go after a new job for technology, which is ultimately Rex. You alluded we're getting to Rex. I mean, that's what Rex is all about is a, a, a job for technology that is meeting the market where it's at in the most vital moment in time in the life cycle of an asset, in my view, which is locking in major decisions about how that asset is going to function and financially how that asset is going to come to be. You know, there's a lot of things that if you get wrong in that moment, like no amount of new formula editors and, and Revit families is going to change that reality. You, you needed to have been at the top of the value chain at the very, very beginning, um, and you needed to be meeting the market where it's at and then earning the privilege to build out from that market position into all sorts of other values that we all want our technology to deliver on. And, and, and that's really what you know got me into the walls of TestFit. And in the last year since I joined, it's been almost exactly a year since I departed Autodesk. So, you know, October 14th was my last day of employment there last year. You know, that has been the defining challenge that bats around inside of, you know, TestFit Slack is, you know, how do we go from where we've started, which is a really awesome product market fit for the spatial test fit um, experience and really build out to the other key pieces around, you know, the financial understanding of the project, as well as the constructability of that project. And, and, and that, you know, those three legs of the spatial test fit, the, the money side and the constructability side. I mean, that's what Rex is all about is that new job for technology. Um, Cause that's where, you know, looking at all the different opportunities that exist in the market and, and Lord knows there's plenty, you know, that's where TestFit as a company said, all right, I'm going to put all of our chips there. Found some great investors that believed in that opportunity and wanted to put their chips there because, you know, we're a VC funded startup that, you know, it's not our chips um, where they wanted to, to actually, you know, go for it. From my understanding, and this was, we left it on a cliffhanger when your colleague, Nat McDonald, was on the show episodes ago. I don't know how many episodes ago, but a few. And we, we kind of started to talk about the idea of what Rex was going to be doing. It sounds to me at a very high level, like it's de-risking those earliest stages to make sure that the thing is viable from multiple perspectives, right? So a lot of times as architects, we're dependent on these jobs coming to us. And that a lot of that feasibility study has already been done. Like the land has already been purchased. The program has already been defined. The investments have already been procured, things like that. And now here we are to provide our service. And I think what you're talking about now is like this new job for technology is circling up the troops from these various points of view and really de-risking the situation to say, like, this is a project worth doing. And for everybody who has a seat at that table early on, that's when the most meaningful decisions can have the biggest impact. And that's kind of the job that the software is allowing everyone to feel comfortable with and trust. 
it doesn't mean everyone's sharing all of their information, right? Their proprietary intellectual property or whatever, but they are sharing enough of their particular expertise in the this recipe, I guess, of of what goes into making a building reality early on to for everyone to say, yep, this is the one we're going to move forward with. And that is a that's a big deal, right? Like this is way more than starting with just a blank page. And and I think that is what is really exciting. Maybe you can get into more of like what's actually happening with this idea that you're pursuing that you guys are all in on because it does seem like kind of a game changer. Well, well, first off, you know, I'll, I'll, you know, you're hired for marketing because you just articulated very well, like a lot of the strategic calculus around <laughs> Rex and de-risking. I mean, that's it. I mean, you, you nailed it. So I'm not going to just put that into Kyle's words again, because you just hit it very well. But just to kind of unpack a little bit that idea of that new job for technology in the most uh, formative moments of the life cycle of a project you know, when we look at what TestFit does really effectively today, it is the spatial TestFit. You know, you can take the, the Lego blocks of different units and throw it into a, a wonderfully uh, software engineered set of routines or AIs. You know, they are. They're ultimately artificial intelligence that were human written that are going to help produce the best fit building for those conditions. And then you can go adjust all sorts of knobs, dials and switches to get you where you need to get. And, and that was awesome. But what is really clear to us is that, you know, we have a simplified pro forma model running in, ta- in real time. And when we talk to the folks that are involved in the money side, the, the reality is, is that the, the money equation on those decisions is it's a lot deeper than that model that sits in TestFit today. And trying to figure out, you know, the classic build by partner equation for how we try and address that as part of the TestFit experience on a project is, you know, that's a big priority for us is to identify how can we add more meat on the bone on the, the pro forma modeling side? Uh, because ultimately, that's the reality. You've got to make sure this thing pencils out and you've got to make sure you're optimizing things in a way that gives the best you know, ultimate experience for the people that occupy that building, as well as the investors that are making that building come into existence in the first place. And illuminating the interaction between the the built form and its program and the money equation is is a big priority. And it's something that we're really passionate about exploring moving forward. So that's kind of piece one in terms of what's what's next. You know, piece two is is something that's very near and dear to my heart professionally. And and that's the uh, the the uh, the constructability angle. And, you know, right now. It's as simple in TestFit as like we produce a simplified quantity takeoff and you're getting like skin areas and and stuff like that, that the pre-con team can, you know, suck into their spreadsheet to go do a much more complicated construction or conceptual estimate. But, you know, if you think about what technology can do as a job in those moments is as you think about the shift from a project based ideology to a product based ideology, when you think about the built assets that are coming out of the construction industry, there's so much opportunity at the altitude level of test fit to get things right from the beginning. And, you know, I think when I look at a lot of the wonderful applications that are out there for doing, you know, the, the, the industrialized construction, 
a lot of them are focused on the kind of final mile, the, like the thing that spits out the shop drawings and, and, and counts all the bolts and gets you the perfect bomb that goes straight to the fabrication. And, and, and certainly there's literally billions of dollars in, in VC funding going after that problem. So, you know, for TestFit, like it's probably not a good idea to count the bolts and get a bomb like plenty of people are doing that. But one of the benefits of, of TestFit is that we have the luxury of not caring about the bomb. Like as, as someone who's deal, dealt with technology teams and, and the realities of delivering technology, like it's kind of impossible to manage the level of abstraction of test fit, which is just simple boxes and the form and the program. And at the same time in unison, also carry the level of abstraction that produces the bomb. Like there's too many paradoxes as you kind of step your way through that abstraction ladder to get to those bolts. Like it's kind of impossible. And so TestFit has the ability to just operate at the level of abstraction at the very early stages to make some macro decisions that aren't going to get you the bomb. But when you go produce that bill of materials, the, the bomb, and I'm talking about like, you don't have paradoxes of like, well, how the hell are we going to use this prefab system? I wish we'd thought about that at the very beginning. You know, that was one of the things as I worked with the industrialized construction team at Autodesk, which I had the opportunity to do, got to work with an amazing uh, lady named Amy Marks, who you should have on your show. She's awesome. She is a absolute tornado of energy and I love her to death. Um, but I learned a lot from her is, you know, if you think about the process of, of implementing a product-based mentality, you've literally got to start from day one. And so we see a huge opportunity at TestFit, which is why constructability is one of the three legs to have TestFit not only help you figure out like, okay, can I meet my program? Will this thing pencil out from a, from a, in, from a uh, investment perspective, but also, you know, can I build it really efficiently? And, and, and can I try to reduce uh, ideally the, the carbon footprint of this building? And, and, and can I take certain approaches that, well, maybe I'm not getting a detailed energy model out of, like we, we kind of know that you do these things and you're going to get better outcomes and help me make some of those big decisions like, hey, what's my macro structural system? And what are the trade-offs between the structural approach I want to take? And what are the trade-offs I want to take at the macro level in terms of systems design? And, you know, do I want to go call up my friends at Nexi up in Vancouver to prefab my walls and embed you know, systems in them because that's an efficient way to work. And some of those kind of macro decisions around how you want to construct the building, we've got a strong hypothesis at, at TestFit that you can make those decisions without generating the build of materials. Because there's plenty of companies trying to do that. And from where I sit, I don't know if it's possible to operate in that level of kind of changeability, you know, flexibility in terms of, you know, exploring different options. If your software's job is ultimately to spit out the bomb, like you're just too low on the abstraction ladder. And so adding more meat on the bone for constructability for us is really exciting. And to get more precise, as I talked about, it's picking different systems, but it's also you know, getting more depth to the estimates that come out of the application. It's going beyond just simply asserting a, a dollar per parking spot in your below ground and a dollar per dollar, a dollar per parking spot in your above ground spots. It's, it's going more deeply in there. And, and we feel really strongly that that, if we can make it happen, is the trifecta of, of, of knowledge and de-risking that we want to try to accomplish. And if we get it right, you know, we just created a whole new job for technology. And as I alluded to earlier, those moments are the moments that change a lot of things. And, you know, that may be the thing that the technology 
innovation and disruption that comes from it finally overwhelms the entrenched reasons why the market hasn't moved in the last 20 years. Those, you know, professional licensure and insurance reasons and contract language. You know, you've finally broken through the point where you can really make a difference. And at least for me, with the things that wakes me up in the morning and brings me to my, you know, my basement office, because we're a remote company at TestFit, you know, it is that problem is trying to figure out how to kind of prove what's next. I, I love this idea of depth. And I think the requirements for depth are becoming stronger all the time for, I think architects are feeling that sense of needing to go deeper, but not necessarily knowing how. And I think the answer is actually really simple. And you are alluding to it with the Rex model, which is tapping into expertise where it exists, because everybody is a willing participant in that. If you know, you can find the right partners to do that, I guess is a better way to say that. And, and what you're giving people the ability to do is to add their depth, their expertise to the model at the most important stages. You're allowing them to all twiddle the knobs and move the sliders, right? Enter the figures so that we can all make the best decisions together. And it's not just one group kind of presenting the scenario that everybody else has to buy off on. It's way more in depth than that. And I think that is something that I don't know. For the most part, there's definitely been a hesitancy in the profession to wade into those deeper waters, but we're seeing the pressure from all different angles. We're seeing it from, you know, the supply chain. How are these things made? You know, Phil Bernstein just talked about this, like the the idea of by making a decision to use zinc on this project, you are actually creating the opportunity for slave labor to continue to exist by that because of the way that those materials are mined. And like, so again, like you don't know what you don't know, but I think the more that that you do know, the more you can tell the stories to the right people who are going to be making the decisions like owners and, you know, developers to say like, look, we need to make ethical decisions. We need to make these decisions for the long term. There was this recent Heatherwick article that I talked about on my other Arcuspeak podcast, which was we need to be designing buildings for a thousand years, not 50 years. And how do we do that? Right. And so kind of thinking about this at a much deeper level by engaging the expertise that already exists inside the building industry, we don't have to have all the answers by ourselves, right? We really can tap into these and for you to create technology that does the tapping, right? It enables these people to work together at the earliest stages to make the most impactful decisions really does de-risk on one level, but enable solutions that like everybody can trust moving forward. I, I would hope that people are all coming to this with the same goal, which is to like really solve the problems that are needing to be solved with these buildings, right? And that can happen at scale. And the profession typically doesn't deal with these problems at scale, right? Every building is unique. Every project is unique. We have to do them one at a time. But I think like we're seeing that the pressure from climate change, from supply chain, from materials, you know, all of these you know, availability, things like that, these problems need to be solved at scale. And we can't continue to chip away at them one project at a time if we really want to make a difference in the world with, and I firmly believe architecture can do that if we will step up the plate. And I think, again, tools like the ones that you're talking about start to enable that to actually happen. Because if we just continue to spend our time drafting lines to put on pages that go into PDFs, 
Like we're never going to get there. We just aren't going to get there. And we're too stuck in our own lane and in our own silo with the blinders on to actually move beyond that. Yeah, I, I, I couldn't agree more, Evan. And, and, and I, I've thought a lot about this, but I, I, I had a tweet and I was in a tweet thread but like months ago and I, and I wrote down, I was like, you know, like capitalism loses to altruism in the Thunderdome all the time. And, 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 and that's been one of those kind of universal truths that I've come to appreciate as I've looked at things not playing out the way I wanted to. I mean, part of my career that we haven't even talked about is there was a period where I was deeply involved in the sustainability team at Autodesk. And, you know, we could have a whole other conversation about what happened with like Ecotech, because I know a lot of people love Ecotech and I could talk about exactly what happened with that acquisition. But the, the point is I'm getting at is like, in my mind, and this is what I'm so excited about with, with, with TestFit in particular, is that you know, I am not convinced that everybody in the system is actually rowing in the direction of what's best for mankind. I actually think a lot of them are just rowing for what's best to make their next mortgage payment or, you know, pay for that boat they want. Um, and I think those things are, I think that is an unfortunate reality of the world we live in. But at the end of the day, making those decisions for the betterment of humankind actually in most cases are good business. They actually are. Like they they pencil out from a financial perspective if we can frame them in a way that those individuals who often are making the decisions but may not actually care as much as we wish they did, like they'll still go in that direction if you can frame it in the right way. And that's one of the things that I'm so excited about with Tesfit in particular is like this is a company that has the the, the guts to go put a price on something and wants to go add more depth to that. Because, you know, I think if we can distill the impact of spending more now to pay less later, you know, that in itself is a very powerful thing because, you know, ultimately I think there's a, a, a much, much higher degree of leverage you can have on the market when you're in that position and the money conversation than if you are, you know, a well-intentioned analysis platform that doesn't put a price on anything and just, you know, can plug into Energy Plus and go do some nerdy energy simulation. I love that stuff. I've worked with that for a long time. But ultimately, like, you can get by without that, but you can't get by without understanding the fundamentals of the financials of delivery. And So that's the thing that I'm really excited about in the longer term is kind of building out to the next set of concentric circles of, of money decisions because at least from where I sit, as much as I wish the world isn't the way it is, it's still the way it is. And that is that if you can frame things in terms of financial opportunity, you're going to have a lot more leverage than you do if you frame things in terms of a more altruistic pursuit of you know, a greater world, which I, I, I firmly live and believe in that. But I, I, you know, I, I ran into plenty of brick walls in my career trying to get there. Um, and so you kind of take a step back and you think about what you can do differently to get to that outcome. And, you know, that's a lot of what we're trying to play out here at TestFit. I totally agree. And the idea, and this is a, I'll reinforce something that a guest that I had on the show a while ago, Sam Schneider of Homestead said, and he comes from a financial background. And I think it's totally appropriate what you're saying here, which is that we as architects need to get way more comfortable and familiar with the financial side of what's going on in our own profession in the delivery of buildings. Because a lot of times, you know, this altruistic, we're going to save the world and it's going to cost a whole lot more, right, to do it on this project. And owners don't like to bite that off. They just don't. Like it's not palatable. And the reason why is because of the way it's presented. It's really plain and simple. It's like, here's how much the budget is for this building. It just went from 60 million to 80 million. Okay. No, thanks is the answer to that. Right. 
when Sam said so eloquently, like you just, you, if you understand finances, you know, nobody buys a building like that. You know, nobody buys a thing like that, that big. When you buy a car, you buy it over five years. When you buy a house, you buy it over 30. He's like, all you need to do is translate that to what the change is in their monthly payment. And all of a sudden it's totally acceptable. He's like, so you do this change and it went from this amount a month to this amount a month plus $30 or whatever it is. It, it's, it's $30 or more for you to make this way bigger impact on the life of your project and everybody who experiences it for this much more per month or whatever that delta is. And, and that simple kind of reframing of that conversation can be so effective. And it's, it's not going to solve every problem you have. But it is going to solve a lot of these problems if you are able to go to the depths to understand a little bit more about that side of the equation as an architect, as an example. And I'm sure it goes multiple directions from the developers to the contractors, you know, everybody involved for everybody to, to have kind of that deeper set of information to work from and a way to communicate that. I guess this gets back to our earliest part of this conversation, right? Which is like, how do you translate this so that somebody else can understand and digest it easily so that they can make a decision to move forward? Exactly. It's funny. I was going to make that connection back to the very beginning. We've come full circle here, Evan, is that, you know, to, 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 to make these things happen, one needs to appreciate that, you know, who has the agency and decision-making and how can I cater what I know to be the right outcome, how can I translate that into something that is going to be the right outcome for the person on the other side? And, you know, to kind of distill the challenge you just mentioned on the architectural practice, and I think you could extrapolate this to engineering and others, is that, you know, I think so much of the case that has been made has been through the lens of the value system that lives within the architecture profession. And there's all these reasons why that's the way the profession views it. But that's not the same lens that a lot of other key stakeholders actually look through. And, you know, if you come in and say, damn it, you know, Revit Systems needs to do these new features and the decision already got made with a different value judgment, it kind of doesn't matter what your logic was because there's a bigger thing going on here. And I think that is certainly an opportunity for the architectural practice because there's so much unbelievable institutional expertise and knowledge and just understanding of how things need to be. It's just more a question of having a different translation to articulate that value into the broader ecosystem. Because I agree with you, there's just such a professional opportunity there. Um, but it is going to come with risk and it's going to come with rewards and it's going to come with failures. And you know, I think to me, that's going to be the defining story of the next 20 years is the market trying to work that out because you know technology is starting to you know make things wobble in a way that hasn't necessarily happened in years past i I love just kind of shaking all this stuff loose and i appreciate what you guys are doing to help make that happen these kinds of ideas we need to be having a lot more conversations in the open about this kind of thing so i really appreciate you coming on the show to do exactly that and you know, I could have never guessed where this conversation was going to go, but I feel like there's so much kind of food for thought in this. And I hope that the conversation can continue. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me, Evan. And, and thanks for the work you do, getting awesome people in to talk about what's next in the future. You know, you're, you're sitting on my subscriptions and my Google podcast app and, you know, you're definitely there as I'm, you know, going out for mountain bike rides and that sort of thing. So keep that up. And, you know, we're always here at TestFit to talk about what we're up to and, you know, let's, let's go do it together. All right. 
Well, again, thank you, Kyle, for sharing. Is there anywhere online people can follow along with your journey, what's going on with you? I will definitely include all the links to the test fit stuff in the show notes and anything else you want to add to that? Well, I mean, just go go keep an eye on what's going on on, on TestFit on social. That's the biggest thing to talk about what we're up to. For me personally, you can find me on Twitter. You can find me on LinkedIn, um, you know, that sort of thing. Um, but it's it's primarily just, you know, go what's going on with TestFit. I mean, those things are one and the same for me professionally. I don't have a lot of a side hustle at this point. <laughs> Great. That's good for you, man. That's fantastic. I'm all well, in, again, man. Thank you so much for sharing today. <laughs> all right. And I'll, I'll talk to you soon. All right. Take care. Thank you to Avail for their support of this podcast episode. Visit getavail.com to see their holistic approach to content management today. This show is part of the Gable Media Podcast Network. You can see all the shows at gablemedia.com. That's G-A-B-L-M-E-D-I-A.com. You can help support what I'm doing here by leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts to help get the word out, and of course, share it with your friends. I'd love to hear from you, so leave a comment on the website at trxl.co slash podcast, where you can find every episode. You can also follow me on Twitter and Instagram and YouTube. Just search for E. Troxel. Talk to you soon.